Welcome to episode 120 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, host of The Climate Champions. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at crevatenergyinnovations.com. This week, my featured guest is Debbie DeCleva, CEO and Milkweed Maverick at Monarch Butterfly and founder of Sustainable Monarch. Monarch Flyway is the longest-running milkweed business in history. She's a second-generation milkweed entrepreneur who worked as an apprentice under her visionary and patent attorney father. Learning about milkweed, its uses, the monarch butterfly, biodiversity, and how to work with nature rather than against it. This podcast is brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. Debbie works with rural communities to stop struggling and start thriving using the renewable, natural resource of milkweed already growing in their area. Empowering communities to change lives and landscapes for the better her vision is to create a contiguous pathway for the monarch butterfly migration across the monarch flyway from Mexico to Canada and the Western migration in California by 2030. Welcome to the Climate Champions. I'm Lee Crevat, and I'm here with Debbie DeCleva, president and milkweed maverick at Monarch Flyway, and also founder of Sustainable Monarch. Debbie, welcome to the Climate Champions. Thank you so much for having me, Lee. It is my pleasure. You know, I've been a fan of Monarch Butterflies since I probably was five years old in 1968, and I read Monarch X. Oh, wonderful. Education is so important to get people learning about monarchs and how we can actually help them in their migration. I'm not sure it was a good book, really. You'll have to tell me because it was about people labeling monarchs with their address so that they could see how far they traveled and where they traveled. And it inspired me to try to do the same thing, which I don't think was a good idea because I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah, so actually they still do that. And it's Scientist Monarch Watch in Kansas. They put together this labeling system where you can actually tag monarchs and see where they end up. So it really helps as far as citizen science goes. Also, when I was older and had a family, I would take them to Natural Bridges State Park in Santa Cruz, California. And that was incredible, incredible seeing all those monarchs together on the eucalyptus trees. Yes, I have actually witnessed that as well at Natural Bridges. And it is so beautiful. There's just nothing like it. Almost every weekend during the season when the monarchs were there, we would go it was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely something that your listeners should go witness for themselves because it's indescribable, really. Certainly is. Certainly is. So now let's get on with the climate change discussion. What was your motivating moment? What inspired you to get engaged in climate change mitigation? It's really interesting. We are a milkweed company. And so we were really working at creating products out of milkweed. And so with that, we needed to bring in milkweed, which is the sole food source of the monarch butterfly. And we tried to model it after modern agriculture. And 
milkweed actually likes to grow in biodiversity. It was unsuccessful doing traditional agriculture, the modern monocropping system. And so we decided instead of doing that, because we'd already started our businesses, we sell down comforters and pillows and we're like, well, we need the material. And so we started working with nature. And this was in the early 90s. So as we started working with nature, we were looking at the different benefits that actually came from working with nature. Now people ask us, well, how much irrigation do you use? How much chemicals do you put on this? We're like, we don't use any irrigation. We don't use any chemicals. And then all of a sudden it clicked like, oh my gosh, we can help combat climate change working with nature rather than trying to make nature work with us. And so really flipping the script as far as getting our expectations in line with nature rather than trying it to force. It was almost a mistake, like almost something that we found out, like what we were doing was actually helping with that. That's actually very similar to my story. I didn't get involved with the energy industry to do anything about climate change. But in that industry, I discovered that I actually could make a difference. And then it was mostly what I started focusing on. Once you figure out like, oh my gosh, this system that I love doing anyway is so beneficial. That's where you get to add it into your story and really focus on it and talk about how the way that we're doing it could actually change the landscapes for good and support people and economies. Yeah, it's great when you get that double bottom line win. Yeah. What else drives you? I really love innovation. And I call what happened with my journey was getting bitten by the milkweed bug. <laughs> and <laughs> so I'm second generation milkweed entrepreneur. My father actually worked for Standard Oil of Ohio and they were working on a biofuel with milkweed. And they found that it actually was not economically feasible. But then in the new venture area, they were trying to figure out, well, what else can we do with milkweed? And they found out all the insulating properties of it. They found that the oil was really good for a number of different uses. And of course, monarch butterfly habitat. But British Petroleum came over, took over Sohio, and they eliminated everything that didn't have to do with petroleum. And my dad felt like, and his name's Herb Knudsen, but he felt like, I just love this idea that we can take milkweed and do so many different things with it. And so he purchased the milkweed venture from Standard Oil of Ohio and started running with it on his own. I was still in high school at the time, and I was the first employee, and I got to see all of these research things that they did at Standard Oil and looked at it and just thought, wow, there's so many things that we could do. And the monarch butterfly was a bonus. It's funny, I actually fell in love with the plant before I even knew there was a real correlation with the monarch, which is also a little backwards. But as you learn and grow, it's so amazing how everything you do is connected to the greater world. And so when we're able to work with nature for multiple benefits, 
that's really what motivates me. What really moves me forward is seeing communities thriving because they're out in nature. Children are learning about the monarch life cycle, all these different things. And you're really changing lives and changing landscapes for the better. When you meet people that don't understand the data or believe the data around climate change, how do you convince them that this is an issue that's important? I live in Nebraska and there's a lot of farming that goes on here, like traditional farming. Unfortunately, we moved the milkweed business to Nebraska because there is so much milkweed here. And now we get most of our milkweed from Minnesota or Michigan because we've killed everything. Wow. One of the big things in our area is the water scarcity is becoming more of a conversational point. The runoff from farming, traditional farming, where you have dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico, the acidification of the oceans, so many different areas where we can point to, like the rainfall, the soil. We had huge dust storms over the summer. And it's like, if you keep these plants in the ground and work within the biodiversity that is there, you're not going to lose your soil. Your soil health is going to be so much better. And if you take a thermometer and put it on the ground of a field that doesn't have cover on it, it's so much warmer. And these are huge expanses in Nebraska where you can show a 30, 40, 50 degree difference in the temperature of the soil of traditionally farmed field, especially when there's nothing growing on it yet, to the sand hills where it's prairie. It's the original prairie that has been out. And does the temperature from the soil make it hotter? Of course, yeah. Obviously not as bad as concrete, right? You know, between the concrete and the fields that are barren, awaiting to be planted, and then just the soil as it's airborne, and it gets in your eyes and your nose and your mouth, and, you know, there's just dust everywhere. It seems like such a simple solution to me, but it's very hard for people to conceptualize. Can you talk about some of the details about what you do to help mitigate climate change? We work with milkweed, but milkweed being a weed does not, we we really tried to make it conform to traditional agriculture. We learned that that was just a losing battle. That's the first time it's clicking in my head that it's a weed and it's right there in the name. (laughs) Right? Like it is definitely a weed. You want it to grow. It's like, no, thank you. You want it to die. It's like, I think this looks like a great spot to grow. That's so awesome. <laughs> it's uh yeah, so it kind of does what it wants to do. And so, you know, we kind of raised the white flag and said, okay, we'll work on your terms. We see the benefits here. So really protecting spots that are full of biodiversity that has that carbon sequestration. The grasslands where milkweed likes to grow is a great carbon sink. People look out and see the grasslands and they feel like there's nothing there, but there's so much biodiversity in there. You have animals that obviously use that habitat, but underground, there is a huge, you know, the microbiome, all these things that will actually sequester carbon 
and it stores more carbon underground than it does above ground. It's really an undervalued, underutilized landscape. And since people don't think that it's being productive, they eliminate it and will turn it into something like corn. But I have a friend from the Nature Conservancy who sent me pictures of a restored prairie 50 years out, and you can still see what part of the prairie they're trying to restore compared to the natural prairie. And they said that it'll probably take centuries to get back into that kind of ecosystem. So destroying our ecosystems, our natural ecosystems, is a lot more damaging than what you think. Like people think, oh, I can just replant that. But the microbiome under the ground and the biodiversity under the ground also is something that people don't realize is so important to our survival. You know, especially that prairies are really great at filtering water and getting the water qualities so that they're much more usable. So we protect these natural landscapes and put them into something where people can monetize it. And when you can actually make a living off natural landscapes, people are not going to take it out. It's something that they'll protect. And what we've seen is that our communities that we work with, when we pay for those milkweed pods to turn into down comforters or skin lotions or cosmetics, they will protect that and guard it. And then they create more. Milkweed, being the weed that it is, will actually shoot out rhizomes. So we use the pods that have the fluff and then also that seed. So we put it into habitat restoration as well. So monarch habitat restoration, where people need to plant milkweed because we've destroyed so much of the habitat. So we're working toward restoring habitat and protecting what is there. And our real focus as a business is protecting the current habitat and expanding it. Do you know how much of the habitat we've destroyed and how much is left? In 2016, the monarch numbers were super low for the eastern migration. I know you're in California where in 2020, the numbers were super low, but people have started planting milkweed again. So we're kind of going back up. And that is the goal is to continue going back up. But the prairie is the biggest ecosystem that the monarchs use. And in states like Iowa, they have eliminated 99% of their prairies. My goodness. 99. Prairie is almost extinct. The original prairies are one of the most endangered ecosystems, and we don't even realize it. Wow. Now I have to get myself together. (laughs) (laughs) You talked about your dad basically being involved in milkweed before you were. Can you talk more about your background and how you got where you are today? Well, so my dad was a idea guy and he was a patent attorney for uh, Standard Oil of Ohio. The Standard Oil of Ohio had $600 million that they didn't know what to do with. So they were trying to figure out regenerative things to do. So if when petroleum was no longer viable to be using, 
what could they do next? So he was working on batteries. He was working on this milkweed as a biofuel. You know, he would always come home and talk about the different things. And then when they chose to eliminate that new venture group, he purchased that. I was his secretary while I was in high school. And so I really just saw so much opportunity, so many different things that you could do with it. And from there, I went to college and worked on communications. But one of the things that I realized in college was if I try to explain to them, I want to be a milkweed entrepreneur, there is no way anyone's going to be able to help me learn this other than looking at history. And so I did a lot of work as far as learning about in World War II, they had this huge milkweed collection. They used it in life jackets and flight jackets because milkweed is a great insulator, but it's also waterproof. And so the entire United States in 1941 to 1943, 44, they went out and picked milkweed, which is actually the way that we get our material as well. But they were able to pick 12 million pounds of milkweed. So if you think about that, 12 million pounds of milkweed, if we were to try to get everyone in the United States to go out and pick milkweed, there's no way we would come even close to 12 million pounds. And this was the motto of the day was two bags save one life because two bags of milkweed pods would make one life jacket and would keep a serviceman afloat for five to 10 days. So it's just amazing. Like the history on this plant, the forgotten history, the amazing things that we could do if we cooperated with nature like they did before and use the natural resources around them in a sustainable way. You are giving me chills right now, honestly. <laughs> I'm getting those pricklies. It sounds like a miracle weed, which is blows my mind. It blows my mind. It actually is. It's another really interesting thing about the milkweed is that it was named Asclepius in 1753. And Asclepius is the Greek god of healing. If you look at any medical sign, there's the rod of Asclepius, which is a rod with the snake curled around it. And that is the botanical name of milkweed. So in our work with milkweed, we found out that it's actually a pain reliever and we call it the other weed. Wow. <laughs> the oil from it, well, it helps relieve pain, restore mobility. My dad found out about that when he had an arthritic hip that needed to be replaced. And he's like, oh, I wonder what would happen if I put this milkweed oil on my hip, which we all thought he was crazy. But he's like, I'm telling you, this feels so much better. And, you know, we started giving some samples out to people and they're like, yeah, it works. So. Wow. Wow. <laughs> right. It's difficult because if things are not USDA approved, even if they've been used in the past, it's not something that you can really go out and market. And so to get FDA approved is not going to be happening in my lifetime, probably, but it's something that we're going to be working toward because 
we have seen such great results with things that modern medicine just doesn't, or the side effects are so great to some of the medications that we have, where again, working with nature, we have the ability to do so much in terms of just harmony, right? When you think of the foods that people ate a hundred years ago compared to what is approved and what you can eat now or what is in grocery stores. There are a lot of things in these prairies that we use with milkweed. Milkweed was also eaten actually, but is not approved in the United States as a food. In Canada, you can actually get pickled milkweed pods. (laughs) I've actually gone out and picked milkweed pods and They're like sugar snap peas almost. I love sugar snap peas. (laughs) (laughs) But there are toxins in milkweed that make it so you have to handle it a certain way. And so, yeah, you don't want to just go out and start eating milkweed. I was about to go pick some. (laughs) Well, cook it, do a little research, but foragers will go out and do that. They'll make milkweed fritters and all kinds of things, but it's not something that you'll see in a grocery store at this point. And thankfully, a lot of the indigenous foods that the Native Americans would be using milkweed for food and medicine, a normal name for milkweed is pleurisy root because it helps alleviate pleurisy. And that would be milkweed roots, basically. Wow. Yeah. Can you talk about setbacks that you've had in your career? Well, we work really hard at staying in business. (laughs) It's such a different way to do business working with nature. So we have worked at trying to be more agricultural and we're not accepted in the agricultural realm because we're working with nature. And then when you go into the conservation realm, people look at you as agriculture and not conservation. And so really trying to have both is something that people just don't, they want you to be either or. And we're like, no, we want to be good for the environment, good for people and create really cool products. And so not having a category, we're creating our own category of milkweed entrepreneurs. And, you know, our real goal would be to create value-added businesses in the communities that we work because The way that this is going to scale is through business. So we have this fine line between business and environmental climate change and protecting this endangered monarch migration. And what we really want to do is get those communities set up so that it can grow. But as far as the setbacks and things, they've been many. (laughs) and varied. (laughs) So, you know, just like FDA approval is one that we found out when we were like, oh my gosh, this restores, you know, mobility and relieves pain. And we're like, great, we're going to tell everyone about it. (laughs) It's like, you go to a trade show and they're like, no, we aren't even going to let you show at this trade show because you're not marketing it in a way that's, you know, within the regulations, which I know ignorance isn't really an excuse (laughs) for things, but when you're new to an industry, you just don't even realize how many regulations there are. And so just as far as like going forward and then getting kicked back 
and then moving forward based on the new information. So it's a constant learning process. So talk about the successes that you're most proud of. When we work with nature, we're usually in underprivileged communities, and they're normally rural because that's where milkweed grows, like not concrete. (laughs) And so I think it's the supporting of these communities that people pick milkweed. It's a side job, right? So we pay for milkweed. They do it like they did in World War II. So we arm them with onion bags. They come back. And one of our collections in Michigan, they started working with us like 15 years ago because they lost their jobs and they needed to get food on the table. And so they went out and picked milkweed and she just found out she was pregnant, lost her job. How are we going to do this? And they lived off their milkweed collections. There are other families who they're like, well, we go out and pick as a family so we can do a vacation. We needed tires on our vehicle and we picked milkweed and got tires. So it's really the human part of helping people that has been probably my greatest joy out of it because I think when you can work with nature and benefit people, you have the chance of making greater strides in conservation. That's awesome. We talked about how it was a double bottom line win, but that makes it a triple because you're also giving jobs to people that really need the work so that they can make extra money or make money to make ends meet. That's awesome. Yeah, it really is a triple bottom line on on what we work toward. And really, we feel like if one of the pieces doesn't work, if it's not great for the planet, not great for people, then we're really not that interested in moving forward with different things. There are a lot of people who have said, okay, in order for us to scale, we have to make milkweed grow in a monoculture. We have to do this. We have to do that. And I think, no, we don't. (laughs) Until I can't get milkweed, enough milkweed in the way that we have done, which we've never run out. We've never, like we have a surplus. Hopefully the market will catch up to this vision and we will have to expand. But my goal would be to expand that in a way that milkweed is still growing in biodiversity. People are still benefiting from it. So my vision would be to have milkweed mavericks across the migratory route, making little businesses or big businesses that support the people of the community and support nature. Given that you get to see that so much of the prairie is gone, when you think about the future and where this planet is going and where it will be in 20 or 30 years, What do you think the planet will look like? I really feel like we need a wholesale change of our agricultural system. And regenerative agriculture is starting to gain a foothold. But I really feel like we could be working more with wild systems. And unfortunately, it seems people have to have drastic things happen to make changes. And I feel like if those drastic things happen, the changes will happen quicker (laughs) because me saying, oh, look, we have great water quality. Our soil health is this. And they're like, who cares? If we continue the who cares, 
this really doesn't affect me in my life narrative, the change is going to be much more painful. The way you're talking about it is how I talk about it, except that I add, if we wait until it's really, really bad, it might be too late to do anything. As you talked about the prairie, you said it could take hundreds of years, Mm -hmm. certainly to restore it. We can't put the ice back right. that's melted. Right. So there are things that it's just too late to change that our lives may depend on. Right. And, you know, I think that what people don't realize is we do have the ability to make changes before a crisis. Proactive. <laughs> proactive. Let's be proactive about this. Yes. And the idea of how to get there, I don't know how you feel about this, Lee, but there's a lot of talk about you've meatless Mondays and go to a vegan diet. And I think, well, your vegan diet, while you think that it might be more climate friendly based on some things that have been written by University of Michigan and whatnot, they're actually, when you talk about having the ground covered, not irrigating, not using these chemicals, those vegan diets, the meats that are plant-based, actually use more and more of that, where people say, well, look at this. It takes so much land to have beef or bison, and that's all prairie. So for me, I look at it as saying, we need to be not necessarily eating more meat, but we need to be supporting the meat industry because those grazers, they also are regenerating those grasslands, the ancient grasslands, where the vegetable-based meat products actually are pulling them up to feed people rather than supporting the rangelands, the grasslands, like this picture back here is bison in the grasslands. And when you take that out, it kills off a lot. And it It also hurts the wildlife in the area because these grazers actually coexist with the wildlife, whether they're cougars or deer, elk, coyotes. There's just so much biodiversity, not just in plants, but in wildlife. It's interesting. Monarchs have shown based on isotope mapping that they will see, like, where did this monarch come from? Most of the monarchs that go to Mexico are from the grasslands. There's not enough biodiversity in the 99% of the prairies that we've eliminated. I know it's a little controversial. but I really appreciate you talking about it. I do try to follow a mostly plant-based diet because I have a belief that it will help with climate change. But what you're pointing out is that there's other impacts It might help in one way, but it doesn't help in another way or it it hurts in another way. I think I've also read and heard that for natural grazing of meat products, that's helpful to the land, very much so, but that we don't do as much of that as we really should, because that would truly be how to get out of the issue we put ourselves into. Right. And since I live in the Sandhills, which is really big cattle country, I can look out and see the beauty. I can see that, you know, there is a ton of land. There actually aren't as many grazers as there is land. People say it takes up so much space. Well, that's also habitat for birds. It's also habitat for insects. That's also where monarchs fly. 
and where most of the monarchs come from. So when you think, oh, we can be efficient, because I feel like a lot of our climate change problems are in our attempt to be efficient. Actually, nature is more efficient than we could ever dream of. We just don't understand it. So when I do buy meat, I buy it at Costco because it's very well priced. Is that meat that came from grazing? Or would you recommend I get meat somewhere else? So you're going to have local ranchers who have beef available. Like we buy our beef from ranchers that we know. And we usually they will make you buy it in like you better have a freezer ready. <laughs> so when you know who your farmer is and you know where your meat comes from, if you've got a local butcher shop or anything like that, see, this is part of the problem that really contributes to climate change because that cheap meat, a lot of times it's from Brazil. They're bringing it in from cutting down the rainforest and doing different things. But if you can find a local rancher if you can buy local beef, there's a company called Blue Nest Beef that you can buy online. And they are really great managers of the ecosystems that they have. They're part of the Audubon Society's grazing program where beef and butterflies and birds all need the same habitat. And so instead of looking at oh, meat is bad. There's actually a lot of benefits to grass-fed beef. In a grocery store, it will normally tell you if it's grass-fed because people are being educated and know that there is a greater value to that and they can help prevent climate change by using grass-fed meat. It usually does come with a premium, but it's well worth it. I will do that from now on when I buy beef. Thank you. <laughs> You're going to help your cause. <laughs> I am. <laughs> other than to eat grass-fed beef, what other advice do you have for my listeners? Well, the other thing that you could do is buy milkweed products <laughs> that are sustainably harvested. We're actually one of the only milkweed companies out there. Right now, we're hoping to get more, but really using milkweed instead of just planting it for monarchs. It's a perennial, it grows really slow. And so when you're using milkweed and there's a value to it, people will increase the habitat for monarchs. So it's just a natural thing. The other thing as far as monarchs go and wildlife in general would be turn your lights off at night. The migratory species, birds and butterflies or nighttime insects really end up having their rhythms thrown off by us leaving our lights on at night. So a simple thing that you can do with a big impact. I love that. It's a unique piece of advice that I have not heard before. I've heard turn your lights off because that will save energy. But the fact that it impacts the natural way of things is another great reason to do that. Thank you. Yeah. So there's a whole movement on that. It's called Dark Sky, where they're trying to encourage, especially cities, to turn off their lights because a lot of times they're just all lit up <laughs> and it just really confuses wildlife. Do you have any questions for me? I am so curious about, you know, like I know everything we use comes from nature. And so with electric vehicles, I'm curious about the lithium and the cobalt. 
and how we're going to be limited on implementing that solution based on what's available? That's a great question. And it comes up a lot. Right now, there is definitely an impact in greenhouse gas emissions because of the mining that goes on for those materials. Those are not super common materials. And we don't have access to them in the kind of numbers we need. But I think as a start, first of all, it's still less of an impact than the amount of gasoline internal combustion engine vehicles use. Think about the amount of gas and how much is drilled. That's an incredible impact on the environment. And then when it's burned, of course. So it's still less. Even in coal country electricity, it's less. But you're right, it's still too much. And that's why there's so much development in battery technology. To me, it's the holy grail of climate change mitigation is work that's done in energy storage. We have to find other methods. I think hydrogen is a potential method, both in cars, but also as a way to store energy over the long term. But there's a lot of other battery technology that is looking to use less and less of those rare earth elements. So I do think over time, we'll get there. But the journey to electric vehicles, I think, has to begin because look how long it's taking anyway. So by the time we have the big numbers, I do believe we'll have alternative methods that are less impactful on the earth. Great. It's one of those things that I'm thinking, I want to support this, but I then I see the degradation in these mining areas and I'm like, oh, I don't know, is the solution better? But knowing that it is actually, it's less than gasoline or coal, so. And even if the electricity is coal generated, it's still better. But ultimately, the electricity in those areas are also going to move toward more and more renewable. And so it'll get better and better over time. So I think electric vehicles right now are beneficial, but they'll get more and more beneficial as the journey continues. Right now, it might be better or close to get a hybrid because then you're using a lot less gas and maybe as good as a battery vehicle right now. I don't think that'll be the case in the future. Well, I appreciate that because I've always been like, oh, I don't know. I need to talk to someone who knows. So I appreciate the fact that you are an expert in that space. Yeah, I often talk about solar was the first wave. You just put it on the grid and it works. So that's you're good to go with solar and it's, it's easy comparatively. The next phase is how do you store that energy? So you really do need some form of energy storage that's not harmful to the planet. And when all those things come together, your electric vehicles become incredible, but you can't wait for that. We have to move all those waves forward together. That makes a lot of sense. So I am excited to be part of the solution with other people like you. (laughs) I'm excited that you are working on this. And (laughs) I, I love talking about this milkweed stuff. Is there anything else you want to say? EPRI has this monarch restoration program where they are working on monarch habitat on the transmission lines, which is a huge bonus for the migration. So when you're seeing the natural landscape under it, it's not because they're not mowing anymore. It's because they're trying to have this pollinator habitat that's beneficial for monarchs and other pollinators which helps all of wildlife. So there's your triple win there as well, because that maintenance is a lot less now that they've quit mowing. 
so much and they're letting the milkweed grow, they're letting the other flowers grow. And that's a super important pathway for those monarchs and other insects and other wildlife. It's so interesting that you brought that up because I interviewed somebody on my podcast, one of the first 10 or 15 episodes, Elizaveta Miloshenko, and she works for McKinsey now as an energy expert. And she brought that up. And I don't know if she brought it up on the podcast or just over some drinks at some point, but she told me all about that and it got me super excited. Yeah. Well, it's been a really great boon to the monarch. So thank you, energy sector. (laughs) I didn't do it, but I'll take credit for it. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. And on that note, I'm going to wrap this up and I'm going to wrap it up with a wrap. The way you got started, your personal seed was that you had a company all about milkweed. I don't know all the milkweed nomenclature, but I'm super excited that you're working in line with nature. You are very much driven by innovation and you got the milkweed bug because it's a family occupation. How do you convince others? I did ask her and she answered that there's no longer so much milkweed in Nebraska. I'm surprised that we don't use milkweed to insulate our roof because we use it in life jackets because it's waterproof. You can alleviate pain. We can make pain escapeus. And the old name for milkweed was escapeus. <laughs> it tastes like snappies, which is a vegetable I adore. It seems like a miracle drug. It seems like everything it can cure food, medicine, butterflies. Hey, we should can it. You have a triple bottom line, people, profit, planet, natural meat for our planet. It's probably best. And you could get them online at Blue Nest. If you want to help bugs turn off your light at night, here's why. Then you could be part of Project Dark Sky. Herb Knutson, her dad, helped her begin her entrepreneur journey. He was a milkweed patent attorney. (laughs) That's awesome. I couldn't miss the admiration and love I heard in Debbie's voice when she talked about her father, Herb Knutson. Sadly, he passed in April of 2020. He was innovative, creative, led with integrity, and saw endless possibilities for milkweed. To fulfill their shared mission, Debbie is looking to collaborate with brands, entrepreneurs, and social enterprises interested in protecting nature and increasing the viability of rural communities. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at crevatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. I reached out to Debbie to talk about the monarch butterfly. I've always loved them. What I didn't expect was to learn so much about milkweed. Thought of by most as just a weed, hey, it's in the name, it provides tremendous benefits. Debbie uses market-based conservation of milkweed and creates profitable prairies. These prairies sequester carbon, protect soil from erosion and degradation, increase water quality, enhance biodiversity, and help mitigate climate change.